This is the ASC podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pei, Yale School of Medicine. This program brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASC is impacting surgical education globally. Welcome to another episode of the ASC podcast. Uh, today, I'm really thrilled to have Dr. John Mellinger, um, who is going to explore the concept of psychological wellness and uh, resilience. Dr. Mellinger, welcome to the ASC podcast. Thank you, Kevin. It's a privilege to be here and look forward to talking with you. Great. Um, I wanted to introduce you a bit here to our audience. Dr. Mellinger is the Roland Fulce Endowed Chair in Surgery, uh, as well as Vice Chair uh, of Surgery and Tenure Professor, and the Chair of Division of General Surgery at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. He was a past program director of the residency program, and of course, we all know Dr. Mellinger to be very active in medical education. Uh, he's also a director of the American Board of Surgery and chairs the Surgery Residency Committee. Dr. Mellinger is nationally recognized for his work in surgical education and was very recently the president of the Association for the Program Directors in Surgery, as well as an active member of the ASE. We are really thrilled to have you today and um, and can't wait to um, discuss psychological wellness and resilience, resilience with you. Dr. Mellinger, you recently presented um, a really interesting topic called Physicians Heal Thyself, a Reflection on Resident Psychological Wellness as part of the American College of Surgeons Resident Associate uh, Society Forum. So maybe we can start there, and, and why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what spurred that conversation and what was sort of the um, gist of the of the program for those who, who had not had a chance to watch it. Well, thank you, Kevin, and sure, I'd be happy to just give you a quick background on that. Um, everyone, I'm sure, is familiar with the work of the RAS and uh, they have had an uh, active program similar to what you're doing, just tackling key topics of pertinence uh, to their membership. And this issue of uh, well-being and psychological wellness, uh, both for trainees and for faculty, has obviously been something that's been getting uh, increasing focus in recent years. Uh, and um, they uh, put out a little blurb on their uh, listserv that just said, hey, we're looking for people that might be interested in working on this topic. And it had been something I'd been thinking about uh, just as I have observed over the years, my own struggles and ups and downs, those of my colleagues, and especially those of my residents. So really, uh, to help me dive a little deeper and be a little more current, uh, and also based on some, some things I had worked on in a much more limited way in the past, I volunteered, and that led to the webinar. So uh, it was a bit of a discovery process for me, too, but it was really fun, and uh, I did learn some things from it, and hopefully we can chat about some of that today. Yeah, and I, that's um, hopefully we, we, we get to um, the topic. But, you know, you brought up a really good point about um, there's a lot of attention to burnout, and I was wondering what your thoughts are. How come? Why, why is there such a, all of a sudden, so much attention to resident as well as attending burnout and wellness? I, th I think it's a good question, and I I think that the problem has been there for a long time, but I think as a profession, we've been pretty good at, at denial. 
um, a couple pieces of data pertinent to that that are more current, but I think illustrate that principle uh, that maybe has been our our uh, historical uh, default with rela with relation to this topic is uh, a study one of my colleagues here at SIU did that I was privileged to be a small part of, but Hillary Sanfi, who many in the ASE community will, will know, is our Vice Chair of Education, tremendous mentor and uh, uh, surgical educator over the course of her career. And she did a study that was published uh, in JAX uh, back in 2015. And one of the things she probed uh, via a survey mechanism was uh, whether surgeons would would uh, do something if they recognized warning signs of burnout or other um, behavioral derailings in a colleague. Uh, and it was things like, you know, frequent conflicts, uh, tardiness to work, alcohol on the breath, uh, behavior problems in the workplace or coming out from home into the workplace, erratic behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. And a third of the respondents on the survey said that if they recognized those things in a colleague, they would actually ignore it, that they weren't sure it was their domain uh, to, to raise the issue. And then on a on a on uh, maybe a little more uh, personal level, I, sort of like I jokingly call it the Lake Wobegon effect, uh, for our view of ourselves as surgeons, there was a study published in Annals in 2014 by Tate Shanafelt from Mayo, who's... I think he's now moved to Stanford, I heard, but he's been a leading researcher in this area, as you know. And they did a survey at Mayo and found that uh, uh, over 70% of their surgeons who had well-being scores that were in the bottom 30th percentile right. compared to national colleagues, uh, that 70% of the people in that category thought they were at or above average in terms of their well-being. So it suggests to me that both at a personal level and in terms of how we see our colleagues, uh, we don't necessarily perceive uh, how we're doing as measured by validated tools. And I think that's that's maybe uh, part of our culture in surgery to um, be prone to some self-denial in those regards. Yeah, I I agree. I, um, I I wanted to know what your thoughts are, whether or not burnout and wellness is more of an issue in academic surgery versus our colleagues in community practice. Do you think it's it, it exists in both places? Is there a difference in the way it sort of manifests itself? That's a great question, and I don't have great data for that. I, I have seen some data that suggests that um, if you're in academics and your niche specifically is education, that the amount of time you're able to protect to per, pursue your sort of area of passion is more likely compromised if education's your focus than some other areas of academics. So, which might be a pertinent theme to to our audience today with ASC. But, but I think the pressures are different in academics um, and the community setting. One thing that I think is favorable about academics, and I will often talk with my residents about this as they are making choices, is um, there's a number of studies that suggest a huge part of what protects us from burnout are our social interactions in the workplace and whether we feel we're part of a, a community that is self-supporting and sustaining. Um, there was a study published um, in 2015 in uh, the American Journal of Transplantation uh, that looked at burnout among transplant surgeons and 
three of the most important or significant or impactful um, protective elements pertain to coworker support and um, supervisor support type issues. So people that had strong coworker support that had a very negative correlation with their burnout scores. Uh, so I think academics um, offers a more varied approach to your work rhythms and the potential to be engaged in a community of people working on common tasks and common goals that sometimes is less present in private practice environments. Um, the flip side is that the, um, the complexity that goes with those multiple tasks, uh, you know, so you may be done with your patient care, but, um, you know, now you got to write a paper or prepare a talk or right. uh, serve on a committee. And most of my colleagues in private practice are less engaged on those kind of fronts, uh, more heavily engaged in patient care. Uh, so I think I think there are nuances, and some can be protective in one way or the other. Some may be more damaging. I think the other thing that's come out in recent years is over the course of a career, there still is a significant difference in overall income uh, between a person in private practice and a person in the academic world overall sure. in the surgical disciplines in, in favor of private practice. And I, but I think that's a double-edged sword, too. If if that gives people flexibilities that allow them to retreat from work pressures and have meaningful hobbies or engagement with their families that's well-supported, I think that can be protective. On the other hand, if, if that money becomes a driver and it's a competitive pursuit of just a little bit more, like like when Rockefeller's... Uh, uh, was asked how much money was enough. He said just a little bit more, and there, there's, something, <laughs> there's something addictive about it that can be very driving, and I think ultimately harmful. So, so I think they're complex uh, influences. Right well, now, but don't you think that in in modern times, even in academic surgery, I think gone are those days where everybody had two weeks of protected time. It, it seems like many academic institutions are going to a very community practice model where it's very heavily RVU-based. Is, is that a fair statement? I think it's a very fair statement, and I've even seen, uh, um, not in my own division, but in my department, I've had young colleagues here who came out of high-powered fellowships. Uh, one example I'm thinking of had an MD-PhD. Uh, right. took a job um, hoping to build an academic foundation, got, uh, to his credit, very busy very quickly in his clinical work, and so busy, in fact, that he had no time for the academic pursuit. And uh, mm -hmm. what happened after about two years of practice in our in our academic group, uh, one of the private practice groups came by and said, you know, you can make a lot more money doing exactly what you're doing, and you have no time to do the other stuff anyway. And he jumped ship. No. So it was a it was a sad loss uh, from our standpoint, um, but it, I think it illustrates what you're saying. If if the emphasis, and I think a lot of this has to do with institutional culture, but if right. our faculty get the message that all that matters is their RVUs, and those messages are uh, overtly and covertly often related, as you say, in academic centers now, um, there can be this sense of why am I why am I working this hard clinically for less pay and no opportunity to do the things I really went into academics to to balance or rhythm my practice with? It's a very valid concern. Right. And you mentioned both in your, um, this concept of institutional strategies that might mitigate or perhaps worsen burnout. Could you 
could you name some of those things that you think at an institutional level can can help with um, surgeon burnout? Yes, and again, I I would reference um, Tate Shanafelt's work. Uh, there's a paper in Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2015 where he uh, focused on this issue. And what they did was they looked at um, burnout and satisfaction scores with validated tools uh, amongst faculty as a product of um, the leadership composite scores uh, present in the institution. And that included, uh, as I recall, both departmental leadership as well as higher institutional leadership like C-suite and dean's office type folks. And there was a very clear and statistically significant correlation that as the leadership composite scores in the institution got higher, burnout scores went lower. Uh, so I think, uh, and, I, and I think a lot of this hinges on whether we have a reactive or proactive attitude um, in, as an institutional culture towards uh, doing the things that help prevent physician burnout. So when we uh, only do back-end management of bad outcomes, so there's a physician, uh, you know, is injured driving home from work, falling asleep at the wheel, or uh, you know, the very sad cases of suicide or something of that nature, uh, right. and we react to it. We say, oh, now we have to do something. Um, that That's not probably ultimately solving much, but when we do things like say, what could we do that would um, allow us to put bookends on unusual periods of intense physical work, uh, uh, limit the number of calls per week for some of our faculty that are very busy when on call, create communities and support networks that that allow the kind of support that the, the transplant paper I mentioned earlier highlighted. Right. Um, eliminate bullying in the workplace, eliminate unnecessary conflicts that we can solve with s systemic solutions. And we're going to do that proactively. I think that will that will have an impact and does have an impact. Did you mention, I think you, I heard you mention the concept of bullying. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. So it's actually so it's really interesting you brought that up because that's actually my area of um my area of interest right now is um workplace bullying among surgeons and and you know there's literature already about students and trainees being bullied but there's actually very little about coworker bullying and specifically of those who uh the bullying that happens from supervisors to subordinates so I'm interested in your thoughts about why there is um, there's so little um, literature available about bullying and how that might actually affect um, a burnout. Yeah, I, you know, I have been fortunate in my career to have suffered relatively little of this, but I have many colleagues that if I were to engage them in an honest conversation, especially if we go back to their residency years, and that's probably where I would be able to recall some instances uh, back into my resident and student years, um, but uh, many of my colleagues would say that even in particularly their junior faculty years, and maybe especially if they come from a group that, for example, women in surgery historically or other minority groups um, that are underrepresented or have been underrepresented, uh, many of them have stories where they were clearly mistreated along power hierarchy, you know, structures. And you're more knowledgeable about this than me, Kevin, with your academic interest in it. But those stories are definitely out there. And yeah. people have been afraid to bring them up 
been afraid that they'd be labeled um, as, well, you know, a weak person or a person who just couldn't put up with the stuff that others did. But, but really, um, maybe maybe one good example of the consequences of this, and this steps across out of just the physician domain, but David Rogers, who I'm sure you know through ASC, past president, did a, a neat set of studies a few years ago I was privileged to be involved with uh, looking at operating room conflict. Mm-hmm. One, one of the pieces that really struck me was that when a nurse was belittled in the operating room or task conflict over the flow of a case became relational conflict where personal blame was attributed or other, or language was used that was more demeaning, if right. you look at what happened to those nurses long-term, a very, very high percentage were totally lost to the institution. Sure. So that the the point is that the consequence of these behaviors um, is, uh, you know, you often hear people say, "Well, we're like the Navy SEALs of of medicine," and uh, yeah. you know, you just if you don't have it, you ought to move on. That's what's required of us. Well, in point of fact, we in an era where we can't afford to lose a quality nurse, those kind of behaviors, in the name of being whatever you want to call yourself really have dire consequences and costs yeah. to the institution. And you can even trace those conflicts now into patient care outcomes, as you know. So yeah. I think this is a real issue, and, and we need to be honest about our history with it and then uh, honest about facing instances where it still occurs. Yeah, and it's such an important point. Um, you, you had mentioned, you just mentioned about patient outcomes. And, it, you know, um, it seems these days that we are, Wanting to tie patient outcomes is a very important uh, endpoint for lots of things, and I wonder one to a multi-part question one: Have we been able to tie burnout, surgeon burnout, to patient outcomes? Um, and two, you had earlier mentioned about this sort of um, putting bookends on intensive periods of work, but aren't we surgeons just so high functioning that? Patient outcomes are not going to suffer no matter how tired we are, no matter how um, angry we are with our partners, and so on and so forth. Yeah, both good questions. Um, let me tackle the second one first because I have something fresh in my mind. I, I heard um, Richard Resnick uh, speak just this past week as a guest lecturer at Sages. Richard is always obviously amazing to, to hear, and he has such a a deep perspective on surgical education, but he talked about um, this issue of patient outcomes and quoted some recent lit- literature that suggested that indeed um, even fatigued physicians uh, can perform in a way uh, that doesn't uh, negatively impact fa- patient outcomes, kind of running uh, as a counterpoint to some of the uh, medical ICU-based studies uh, that, right. you know, were published a few years ago and brought a lot of attention to the duty hours and specifically the 16-hour rule. So I, I do think there are there are ways uh, that we can, and we do train ourselves for this, that we can function and perform, uh, especially if we've got a good system around us of support when we're fatigued, and still do good patient care, and there's evidence to support that. That being said, I think we're... we're um, again, maybe in a bit of denial if we think we're immune to the potential for those effects to creep into things that do impact our patients. And one one study that looked at that, again, from um, Lottie Derby and Shanna Felt at Mayo, and this was published in JAMA in 2011, 
um, found that physicians who were reporting burnout were indeed more likely to make medical errors, um, had lower scores on instruments that validated instruments measuring empathy, so that the sort of compassion fatigue issue, um, and then that these correlated both with lower patient satisfaction scores and lower adherence of a patient to the care plan, especially in a post-discharge setting, which which those things can cer certainly have been shown in other studies to correlate with patient outcome. So I think it's I think there's some um, muddiness to the water yeah. on this topic, but I do think there's plenty of things to give us cause for pause um, about uh, the impact, and I think they may be accentuated for those of us involved in student and resident education. Um, they, those things may be accentuated in learners who haven't had as much time to build up coping mechanisms and skills that allow them to continue to perform even when they're tired. Sure, sure. Now, I don't know if this is a, a fair statement, but I, always, I often feel like it is easier to identify burnout in others than it is in yourself. Yes. I, and I would, go ahead. Uh, well, so my follow-up to that would be, how do I know that I'm when I'm burnt out? Yeah, one one uh, uh, neat tool that you may have used or seen, but I know the college offers this on its website, and there are a couple surgical groups I'm part of that have encouraged all their surgeons to enroll. But you get a, I forget if it's monthly or quarterly. Uh, you get a uh, abbreviated version of sort of a mass-like scale that just probes uh, your contentment and uh, work-life balance, and it gives you a score compared to your colleagues. So I, I think um, I think you're right that we may be our own worst enemies in terms of recognizing. Uh, and when we do recognize it, I think what we often become aware of is endpoint behaviors that come back at us rather than that we're tired, that we're worn down, that we're emotionally exhausted, uh, that we're not feeling a deep personal connection and meaning in our work. We, we often don't recognize those things, but we'll recognize that I was irritable today. Uh, I did a sloppy job on that, that task, uh, et cetera. I didn't, I didn't contribute in a meaningful way other than complaining at that committee meeting. You know, those kind of, we'll, we'll right. see the symptoms rather than the underlying issue. Um, so, uh, and, and I do think, while we re I, while we recognize it in others, again back to Dr. Sanfi's paper, I, I think we need to get over our reticence to constructively and humbly bring that up with one another when we do see it. So that's a really interesting and important point of bringing and sort of calling it out, if you will. So how how do you recommend one do that? So let's say one of my partners, I just think that they're burnt out and I worry about them. Um, how do I approach that? Yeah, it's it's a really good question, and we've probably all seen it or experienced it being done well or poorly. But I think one thing that's very important is that when when we um, bring something like sensitive like that up to a colleague, if it comes in a context where we already have established that we deeply care about them as people, yeah. um, you can speak a lot of uh, objective truth into those situations, and. Um, and you're you're sort of enabled or empowered by the relationship. That being absent, yeah, I think you do have to be very careful about how you come across. There's there's been ancient treatments of this this theme in um, 
uh, you know, biblical and other texts about the balance between grace and truth and speaking the truth in love. But in modern times, there's been some really, I think, helpful focus on it from the business world side. Uh, one example is the book Radical Candor that's been popular. Um, I'm blanking on the author's name right now, but she was a, an executive at Google, as I recall. And she went through some work relationships where she realized she really failed to communicate clearly and meaningfully into the lives of those she was responsible for. And she came up with this concept of radical candor. And basically what it is 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 a reiteration of those ancient principles that when there's deep personal caring and engagement and very truthful relaying of information, you can really uh, spur one another on and help one another to, to better product yeah, that's, personally and professionally. That's actually a really great book. I think um, Kim Scott, I think, was there you go. the name. Yeah, Thank so you. That's a really interesting book. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but I think that's, that, that model helps me think about how I might do it well. So, so if I have no relationship with someone and I see a misbehavior uh, that might be a clue, maybe I'm better off, although you don't want to turn this into a gossip change, but to seek out someone who works closely with them, knows them well, who I trust and know will, will be uh, careful in how they handle these managing information, just say, hey, I'm I'm concerned with this. You're closer to them than I. Uh, if, sure. if it rhymes, maybe you can uh, help communicate it to them. Versus if I have that relationship, what Kim Scott would tell me to do is very much view that as as my opportunity and responsibility and and be open for their similar critique of me um, that often I think helps open the doors when the way you approach it is to say hey I've, I've been struggling in some things myself but I noticed this I just want to be sensitive is is this something that's been weighing yeah. on you and if so how can I help yeah and and I actually think that for many people who uh, suffer from burnt out and psychological uh, psychological um, stress from work maybe they're waiting for somebody to say something because especially in our surgical culture, we often think of, well, we can't bring that up because that's a sign of weakness. Yes. And if somebody were to approach me about it, it almost normalizes and say, let's talk about it. Let's find a solution for this. Yep. Uh, I think, I think you're right. There was a creating context where those kind of conversations can occur. Um, you, you know, Argovan Salis and, um, when she was at Stanford, she they did a paper um, that was published in JSE just last year that looked at a program they tried to set up for their residents to try to help create better balance and wellness. And one of the measures they put in place was a weekly confidential meeting uh, facilitated by a clinical psychologist, which was with residents at a specific PGY peer group level, so it wasn't you know, yeah. the intern meeting with their chief. But the whole purpose of it was to create an ongoing context where those kind of conversations could be had, and it was for that purpose so people ideally would feel safe um, bringing those issues out. Yeah. So I, I think one yeah. thing we can do is say, um, not that we all want a weekly group therapy session and, you know, have that, that to people's calendars, but <laughs> that we would create create contexts where we could do that and, and it would be comfortable, safe, you know, declared ahead of time. Part of what we're doing here is helping each other out in this way. Yeah, absolutely. I It's really funny how you brought up the weekly counseling session because, <laughs> you know, one of the institutional, sometimes one of the institutional solutions is to have weekend classes to talk about wellness and burnout. <laughs> and 
you know, and so here's a bunch of faculty going, well, now you're contributing more to our burnout um, because we're having to spend our weekends with you on these courses. Right. Um, But yeah, what, so I know that because of the attention to surgeon and resident uh, wellness and burnout, that at an institutional level, um, the I think maybe the right thing for the institution to say is we care about our surgeons' wellness and we care about our residents' wellness, but we sometimes get mixed signals. I really would like to know your opinion about this. So, for example, at the same time that an institution is telling us that they care about our wellness and burnout, we are getting endless um, notifications in our in-baskets about delayed cosigns. And um, in general, you get the sense in that they're um that the institutional institution is working on this system of negative reinforcement uh you know if you don't do something you get in trouble but if you do something that's sort of expected and i i personally am having trouble reconciling this this concept of we support we want to make sure our surgeons are not burning out and are well and yet really in practice all these institutional policies are not necessarily in line with those goals yes I think the era we're in, uh, as it pertains to, you know, a lot of buzzwords we could touch on, the EHR and compliance modules, and I know uh, I I made up a little tabulation a few years ago as I just tried to count in in only a two-hospital system, and some of our residents function or faculty in, you know, six or seven hospital systems. The number of compliance kind of checked the box. Yes, we covered that. Our, that's our annual training for that. There was probably at least a week a year um, of work time that people were spending keeping up with the School of Medicine and the two hospitals, and then for some of them, other societies or things they were engaged in that they, they had to do some of that kind of work for. Um, and everybody knows the estimates of the, the EHR that it is taking you know 25 to 50 percent of physician time and and cutting down on the relational time with patients and so forth. So I do think that our administrators are in a tough uh, environment themselves, trying to figure out how to meet all the compliance requirements that they face at an institutional level that our our uh, schools face educationally and otherwise, uh, and not overly burden. Uh, folks with busy work um, that that really is um, debilitating uh, and often doesn't add meaning and I, and I think that's that's one of the things that um, we we could focus more on um, is the the whole principle of meaning um, we've you you'd be familiar or many of the people who might be listening to this will be familiar with Daniel Pink's books and his book Drive about human motivation um, he comes up with this mnemonic AMP or AMP uh, that basically mean the things that motivate people to do work that involves a significant cognitive element like our work does uh, are autonomy, uh, the sense that they really have personal responsibility, mastery, they can become really good at this and in a way that contributes meaningfully to the world and people around them, and purpose, that there's meaning or significance personally to them what they do. Well, a lot of these things we're talking about don't align in those regards. It's minimum requirement, uh, repetitive, do the same thing you did last year just to remind you that of things that you didn't need to use in the past year, but we want you to know. And, you know, it it sort of runs immediately 
in opposition to those principles. So I think one of the things, the discussions we can have is how do we truly minimize, like if you've got three hospitals in your system and all of them are going to make you do a, a, a course on, you know, harassment or workplace violence or whatever the topic might be, can we standardize it so you can do that once and not three times? Right. Um, can we turn it into an interactive session that people can actually talk about the real issues they're facing and not just uh, check boxes and look at hypotheticals? And so trying to bring meaning to the things we have to do and trying to limit the amount of or the volume of it so that people don't feel, um, you know, beaten down by it compared to their other tasks, I think are important questions to have with our administrative leaders. Yeah, really brilliant ideas. Um, I, I wanted to go back to the original title of your uh, of your webinar, which is "Physician Heal Thyself," and that's really, I think, powerful. So, can you expound on that a little bit, and uh, maybe start touching on this concept of personal resilience? Well, um, the thing that struck me as I thought about the topic and where the title came from is that the people that seem to do the best. Um, as I reflected on it in my work environments, um, they do have support, um, often from spouses, often from colleagues, but many of them have learned a significant degree of self-management. Um, they have learned uh, tools along the way that they seem to employ and habits and disciplines in their behavior that they seem to use. Um, uh, in some one of the talks I give, Related to this, I, I talk about how some of these habits and behavior elements are sort of the be behavioral equivalent of deliberate pr deliberate practice of a technical skill. Sure. Um, we know how to do that to build our technical skills, but actually we can do this in our behaviors and in our habit formation, and it lets us have different epidermal responses to stressors than we might mm -hmm. otherwise have had. And um, so, how would we go about that? And it's a it's a question to really ponder it, and there may be some different answers for different ones of us, but one of the things that really helped me with this was I was at a conference a few years ago. I was actually overseas with a group of um, third world healthcare workers, and a psychiatrist from the Mayo Clinic, Terry Rummins is her name, gave a talk based on a book called Resilience, and there's a number of these books that have been published now, but this one was by two psychiatrists, one from ICANN at you know New York City, Mount Sinai, and one from Yale, Charney and Southwick were the authors. And they had done a, a deep study of um, survivors from the Hanoi Hilton primarily and also right. other, other uh, sort of extreme victims, uh, including uh, people that have lost their limbs to landmines and, and things like that, situations like that. And they came up with uh, this principles of resilience that the people who survived those kind of environments seem to have in common. And that book, I think, was a great uh, place for me to start reflecting on this and just asking myself, what are some of the personal disciplines that if I could build them into my day-to-day -day life would make me more resilient and help me? I, I don't know, I heal thyself may be too strong a way of saying it because I don't think any of us can do this totally on our own. But how could I do things myself that would be protective, that would be um, helpful to me, and maybe even help me role model uh, for my learners things that they can sure. start doing that would help them as well? Um, and I could go through some of those principles, but the, the book is a nice summary of that. 
Yeah, I well, so uh, would you mind going through some of those principles for for those who may not read the book? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll say this at the outset because I think it may be the the most important take home. Yeah. And I'll and this is a quote I'm going to read from the book um, where they were summarizing what they what they saw. And I'll, I'll read the whole paragraph, but I'm going to emphasize emphasize one last sentence. So uh, here's what they say in summation: In response to stress. The people we interviewed confronted their fears, maintained an optimistic but realistic outlook, sought and accepted social support, and imitated sturdy role models. Most also relied on their own inner moral compass, turned to religious or spiritual practices, and found a way to accept things they could not change. Many attended to their health and well-being and trained intensively to stay physically fit, mentally sharp, and emotionally strong. And most of them were very active problem solvers who looked for meaning and opportunity in the midst of adversity and sometimes would even find humor in darkness. And then this is the sentence I wanted to emphasize. Finally, all of the resilient people we interviewed accepted to an impressive degree responsibility for their own emotional well-being, and many used their traumatic experiences as a platform for personal growth. So when I read this, I said, you know, these folks who have, you know, in this, in the case of the Hanoi Hilton, survived something much more austere and difficult than anything I'll encounter in surgery, residency, or training, or practice, they had a curricular view of life. And when they encountered yeah. obstacles, they said, there's learning opportunity here. I can benefit from this. And then they knew how to tap into certain, again, habits and behaviors, confronting fear, having an optimistic but realistic outlook, finding support in community, finding role models that were functioning in the environment and taking cues from their behavior, et cetera, et cetera. But those are all things that we can do. Um, and I'll just give one example. Personally, my my internship year, I won't name the institution, it's a great institution, but at the time I was there, they had a 40% attrition rate. Cool. And um, and I ended up leaving after one year to transfer to another program because I, my wife told me my personality was changing and I just thought it wasn't going to be, I thought I'd be well-trained but maybe not whole when I finished. But there was one senior resident in particular I remember in that program who was thriving in the environment. And I bet more than half the junior residents in the program would talk about him and what they learned from him and what they saw in his example. All we were doing is is one of these principles. Who's a sturdy role model in this environment who's found a way to function well? And what do they do? What are their habits? How do they go about their business? I want to learn to imitate that. So I think these principles give us things to pursue, and they're things we can own so that maybe we feel a little less victimized and a little more personally responsible for our our uh, progress or lack thereof. And this owning your, uh, taking responsibility for your own emotional well-being as well as this concept of resilience, is that within all of us? I think it is something we can all do and learn to do. Um, I think there are folks who are blessed to leave their childhood with that skill set already. And then there are some who grow up in, you know, really difficult home or other environments for whom it has to be an acquired or learned skill. I used to think that 
that this was, you know, sort of you either had it or you didn't. And um, um, there's a funny quote I sometimes share from one of my faculty meetings a year ago where we were struggling with a behavior issue in one of our residents that we hadn't managed to fix, as is often the case, as we all know, especially yeah. if it's a character-based or professionalism issue. And after we'd wrung our hands for about 15 minutes as a group at the faculty meeting, one of the faculty in the back of the room in a deep southern accent said, listen, y'all, this boy's mama screwed up, and you ain't never going to make him right. <laughs> and, and the, you know, the point was, this is hardwired, and it's not easy to fix. But I think sometimes we throw up our hands at that and say, it's the way I am. I can't be different. And I think right. there's a lot of literature around character and habit formation, including very contemporary stuff that would tell us otherwise. And and so, the, again, the question is the how, and that's where things like role modeling and developing habits and disciplines that help us um, pursue some of these goals that, that I've just mentioned can be very helpful. Yeah, I I total I completely agree. I and I'm actually um I'm going I'm hoping to work on a body of um of literature about how how bullying among peers in the workplace um is contributing to burnout. I would love your expertise because I think I think that that is an area that is not yet tapped into and and I think we need a better understanding of what how bullying at the workplace um contributes and how we could how we can make things better. I think that'd be a great a great thing to pursue and uh, would would say something powerful to our learners who observe it being reviewed and discussed and worked on. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Mellinger, this is such a pleasure. And at the end of our, all of our ASC podcasts, we always ask um, luminaries in surgical education like yourself um, who've made it in their careers what advice you would have for a resident or a junior faculty member who wants to be like you one day well i hope they will all be much better uh, but <laughs> but i would i would say on these themes um i one of the things i did at the end of the ras webinar was i tried to just say to myself okay what have i learned that i've actually can say from my own experience not just quoting someone else has worked and helped and I came up with a few principles, so I'll just quickly relay those. One is uh, the the uh, get the rocks right. And many people have seen the illustration of putting the rocks in the jar. And, you know, you get rocks of different sizes, a little gravel, a little sand, a few big rocks. And the task is get all that to fit in the jar. And what you learn is if you put the big things in first and then the things that are just a little bit smaller than that, and leave the sand for last, it all fits. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't put the big things in first, it doesn't fit. And so you got to look at your life and say, what's the stuff that's got to be right? Uh, I got to I got to give that priority. Um, I think a second thing is all of us have restore points that we've learned along the way. For many folks, it's a spiritual discipline. For some, it's an athletic or physical discipline. Um, I read a book some years ago about geniuses in history, uh, or I didn't read it. I'd heard a guy discussing it uh, who'd written the book. And one of the things he pointed out is that all the geniuses he'd studied across disciplines had a reflected habit that allowed them to retreat from their primary area of activity and hit a restore point before they went back to it. And we all have those, and we kind of know what they are, but we often neglect them in the pressures and whether you want to call it a Sabbath principle or whatever you want to call it, um, there, don't let go of your restore points, whatever you found they are for you. 
and that'll sustain you and keep you whole. Um, looking for things that are timeless and are, and are relational, um, I think, is a good way to decide what's really important. We tend to do a lot of um, topic du jour pursuits, even professionally, and yeah. stepping back from time to time and saying, what what will matter 50 years from now? And, and what, what involves me in a community of people that can help sustain me in pursuing things of real meaning? Uh, and what relationships do I need to build to be part of such a group? Those things are very helpful. Um, and then finally, um, building disciplines around all these things so that they're protected. They don't happen in a haphazard way, but they're part of our scheduled approach to our life. Uh, they're intentional. And, and applying that principle from that quote I shared have a curricular view of life. You know, none of us is perfect. <laughs> yeah. And especially the areas where we're flawed, uh, that's a curriculum for me. You know, that's an area I'm mentally yeah. learning something about. And to view it as such instead of what a jerk or failure I am, there's no hope for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it may be a long haul, but, but there's something to work on there. Um, and I, I love the way that those men in that book framed it, that these people that survived that environment definitely looked at life and said, we're going to grow through this, even if it's tough. Really, um, really sage and powerful advice. I am so honored, and, and it was such a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Great privilege, Kevin. Thanks for all you're doing, and I'll, I'll look forward to hearing uh, not just this, but many of the other things you're working on for ASC. It's tremendous. Oh, that would be wonderful. Um, audience members, please join us for our next ASC podcast. Thank you all so much. And that wraps up another edition of the AIC podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology, the Association for Surgical Education. You can check out many great resources on the AIC website at www.surgicaleducation.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast series where we discuss pressing issues in surgical education. We invite you to join AIC and get involved and wish you success in your pursuit of surgical education excellence.